Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing the difference between framework agreements and public contracts and how to deal with criticism in academia. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hola. Back hello, at hello. it again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm getting the work done. I'm very mindful that I shouldn't laugh at the beginning. So I didn't laugh. Yes, very, very so serious. Yes, very serious. So let's get right to it. Um, what are we talking uh, about today? It's good to be back. Um, we're talking about, I think, a very topical issue today. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between a framework agreement and a public contract. And their Heavy main course. Heavy it's, main course. Yeah, it's very nerdy today, I think. That's why I've kind of, well, I don't know if it's... Uh, when I talk to my wife about this podcast, she thinks we're the biggest nerds. We ride it to our, it's nerd level Nimbus 2000, really. <laughs> um, it's interesting that you say nerdy. I think that it's quite practical. There is a lot of practical issues in differentiation between the two. So also interesting, different perspective on the topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you keep telling yourself that, that it's not nerdy. No. <laughs> I'm making this time a call to our dear listeners who are practitioners who will listen to this. Please support me. Please support me in comments. Let us know. Look, Isn't this a practical issue? Nerds can also be super practical. So, anyways. Um, sorry, we, we, we promised we were going to get very serious today. So we're yeah. talking about this difference. And um, it's something that you've been working on recently and that we've been discussing for a bit. So we thought it would be interesting to also um, uh, talk about it in the podcast. For dessert, we're talking about something that Albert Sanchez Grails uh, suggested to us uh, when we called it out. Uh, what should we discuss for dessert? And uh, a couple of people responded and he said, well, one of the things that I would love for you to discuss is how to deal with criticism um, following your work, right? Or based on your work as an academic, yeah. perhaps. Um, so that's what we're doing for uh, for today. Um, and so we're, on the one hand, looking at this more fundamental difference between the two sets of agreements or contracts. That's, I think, uh, one of the things. But we're also looking at a more specific situation uh, for which this difference is important. So that's why it's relevant to combine the two is if you as a contracting authority can um, call off another framework agreement within a framework agreement. So basically, you have one framework agreement, you have one or multiple uh, bidders that are entered into the framework agreement or allowed to be part of it. And with that selection, you sign another uh, framework agreement. And the third step would then be to have you know, contracts that are given perhaps based on a mini competition or call-offs, right? Um, but perhaps based on this general introduction, you can um, take us along <clears throat> a bit in um, in the importance and how you got acquainted with this topic. Sure. Well, uh, why is it important? Why I thought and I tried to convince, as you can hear the listeners successfully, Willem, that there is a relevance and importance in discussing this topic. Well, it's something that occurs um, at times in practice as an issue. Um, and you can see in a ver- variety of jurisdictions where there are national court judgments 
Um, on the debate, what is the difference between framework agreement and public contract? So there is, a, there seems to be a certain confusion at the same time, a need for clarification. What's the difference between falling from the practice? And I more specifically have been invited by a dear, uh, dear colleague, um, Osa Eben, who is a fantastic, uh, procurement legal procurement specialist in, in, in Sweden to chat to, um, to the, to, to her organization about uh, this specific aspect of awarding framework agreements within framework agreements as in Sweden that has been a case law that sort of flipped certain things upside down and that sort of follows then there is also Danish case I now try to sort of map it out a little bit today but to start from a general standpoint on why the differentiation between framework um, agreement and public contract is relevant well it is an application of a rule question so if we have a public contract if we assume that we award public contract, if you have some sort of follow-up, a second stage following public contract, that already stands outside of procurement rules. So you have more flexibility, more possibility of doing different things. It's not as rigid, rigid as it is if you have as a first starting point a framework agreement and just second step of that is a public contract. Then up here you are still within those two stages, you are covered by the procurement rules, right? So I think that this is the first step because um, there is a certain differentiation. The second aspect of that is that, of course, if, as, as we as we all know, um, why there is no limitation for how many years you can you can uh, conduct a public contract, there is a limitation for how long you can have framework agreement, and that is just four years, right? So again, this differentiation between those two will have a consequences because if you concluded something naming it a public contract, but it's actually a framework agreement and it's for, let's say, seven, eight years and there is not due to duly justified reasons, you are in violation of procurement rules. So this is, again, a question of application of the of the rules. And as I mentioned, um, according to some case law, particularly um, we have some cases that I want to share with you today from Sweden and Denmark, um, that says that you cannot award framework agreement from framework agreement, but you can award framework contract or a ongoing purchasing agreement. And then my head sort of explodes, right? My head, because... when you suggested this topic, my head started spinning as well, because <laughs> just to provide a bit of, perhaps I've got fellow Europeans on my side in this episode, because my mind went bonkers when I heard about what these you practices. Want? <laughs> so, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, what do you want? Yeah, so I, I think the, the, the starting point of that was, is I, I'm just posing the question. Don't feel, feel the need to answer it yet because I don't mm -hmm. want you to, you know, you, you want to talk about the case law. But like my first question would be, why on earth would you want to do this? This is the first one. And two, this distinction that you talk about in in the Dutch Public Procurement Act, a public con a, a framework agreement is a public contract. So it's defined period. as one, period. Dot. Interesting. So all the, all the rules simply apply. And the, 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 okay. the legal reasoning for that is that the directive says things like, well, to award one, you need to follow one of the specified procedures in the directive, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a link there as well. So this, this difference is, was already also when I talk, because talk, generally when I feel um, 
challenged, and I think this can't be. I have learned to question my own ability and then to think, I need to discuss this with people. And sure. so I spoke to some practitioners as well, and they also hadn't heard about this type of pr- practice, or at least mm-hmm. it doesn't hasn't come up yet as, as, a, as a thing in the, in the Dutch, uh, Dutch jurisdiction. So that's why I was super interested to hear that there is some type of one practice going on in other member states, and two, that this case law, right, stuff that we can discuss. Exactly. And it, and this is, again, um, I'm following the lead of Willem in that sense. Uh, for any of the practitioners that listen to us and have some viewpoints um, or have some case law that would be relevant here, if you could let us know, that would be fantastic. Then maybe I can gather all of it and prepare some sort of blog post for our website that will include more comparative uh, vision of what's going on in Europe in context of this. But yeah, let's yeah. let's start because I think that the ne- I already have so much question about the Dutch approach, um, but I'm going to restrain myself <laughs> okay, but until I, I our discussion to, I, points. I, I know you want to restrain yourself, but maybe to, to, ex, ex, to explain that a tiny bit for, further, yeah. there are, is one link to something that's come up in recent years is this two-phase type of contracting that happens in the Netherlands where you have have two phases of contracting one to set up the tender and and second uh, to 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 actually start creating so it's more of a design phase and it's outside of the, the, the traditional ways of competitive dialogue but one of the issues they're faced with here and, and i'm sure you'll come back to that is how specific do you need to be at the start right how so, specific should it be so exactly in context of all this discussion that we're having today there are two things that we're trying to really answer um, because th- those are the ones that I think that pose a certain issue. One is how specific you need to be. And second of, it, second of them is, do you need to have, or at which stage or which point, you need to have something that establishes an obligation to purchase at least minimum requirement? Because, yeah, okay, let me restrain myself because I feel like I have a quite nice idea for a structure and now I got excited Willem said three words about Dutch thing and I already want to ask a bunch of questions. Don't but blame, don't I know it's like a nice thing to blame the Dutch but we're not all bad, right? So just like, <laughs> but take let's it easy. Do, we'll exactly. Keep going, follow your original structure yes, and I going, promise to won't nudge you. We're going to get to the Dutch um, too. But let's start <laughs> with the we're going to start with the Swedish case law. As I mentioned to you, this is sort of where, where what got all the ball rolling. So um, I've uh, had a, a pleasure of, uh, of working on framework agreements for some years. I already published some things on on the subject matter of what's the difference between public contract and framework agreement, but I didn't look into this framework agreements or framework agreements. And then I got to know about this Swedish case law, which is the <clears throat> which is the uh, judgment from the Administrative Court of Appeal in Stockholm. So this is not the <clears throat> Supreme Court, but it's the Appeal Court. But ultimately, what the court established is that um, all awards from a framework agreement must result in a contract or in contracts. And those contracts need to settle all conditions, at least for more than 50% of a contract value. So it gets quite specific, right? So um, ultimately on the basis of that contract, uh, oh, sorry, on on the basis of that judgment, our wording framework agreements from a framework agreement is not something that Swedish court practice allows. 
So what that means in practice? In practice, that means that you cannot call off from a framework agreement with one or more suppliers because there is no differentiation here um, in ranking order. Um, an IT system, including, for example, implementation services, if the services cost more than the system itself and they are not specified to a full extent. And by full extent, you mean here exact volume to be purchased, right? According to the Swedish courts, this type of setup that I just descri described is a framework agreement. And that is not allowed. So this already sort of is interesting. But then there is another um, administrative court of appeal. And oh boy, now I need to try to pronounce that. Jönköping. I'm very sorry to all the Swedish listeners um, for the pronunciation. But what that judgment does is that they kind of play the mixed procurement approach to them. So they're saying, okay, you have... Uh, you have an agreement that ultimately have both elements of what you would traditionally uh, classify as public contract and framework agreement. And how they differentiate here is that they're saying you have certain part of this agreement that has a binding obligation. So you bind yourself to purchase, let's say, minimum 20% of the value of the contract with the option of buying more up to the max value of the framework agreement, right? Kind of straightforward here. That's that's, that's a general approach that you, would do, that you would follow. But what the court ultimately said in that case is that, well, you need to differentiate between them, applying the rules of mixed contracts, so identifying what they refer to as or this dominance principle or the principle of uh, main purpose of contract. There's a slight differentiation between those two that to be very honest, I'm not entirely sure how it rolls. So so we might need yeah. someone to clarify that for us. But what you then do is that out of that agreement, you're saying, well, part of it is a contract, part of its framework, depending which one has a higher value, which one is the of the main purpose. That's what the agreement in the end of the day is. Which, again, sort of makes the idea of having a framework agreement in the first place a bit bizarre, right? Because in particular sectors, you may need to have a minimum, uh, a minimum sort of uh, required purchase, right? Yeah. To kind of keep a certain companies on your framework. So those are the, the Swedish practices. So in general, you need to be super specific, a very traditionally understood notion of you have a framework agreement, you award contract on the basis of that. It needs to be very specified. No place for wiggle room, right? And this seems to be a, something that particularly the largest buyers are interested in to have a more flexibility in, to be able to, you know, specify things. Because ultimately what we, when we think about it, we're thinking about this notion, you set up a first framework agreement that is of a very general nature. And then you're setting up a second framework agreement within the original four years. So this is an important thing to have in mind, right? We are not talking about situation that you have a framework agreement for four years and then three years in, you're establishing in the mini competition, not public contract, but another framework agreement for four years. Yeah, because that I would be that, clearly against the, rules, the, right? The, the same would be, you know, if you would have a normal framework agreement and just two weeks before the end of it, you start giving out all these contracts I think courts would be hesitant, to, even though they were based on the mini competition, whatever, you know, they would far exceed the, the term, terms and conditions of the framework agreement 
I think courts would even be hesitant to accept that. So let alone awarding a framework agreement that then would extend as well with the other contracts that are given. Well, you see, I need to say that I, I, I wouldn't agree with you on that. I think that even if it's quite late in a framework agreement, but you award a contract, I think we have a clarification of that in one of the recitals of the directive, that your contract can surpass the timeline of the framework agreement. This is not yeah. an issue there. So I think that I would sort Within of reason, expect though, that's, that. I think the, that. That's, I think, the issue often, right, uh-huh. is that if they run for far longer than that, mm. there needs to be a certain amount of reasonableness. Around that, yeah. For sure, what you cannot do, I think that there is no point of any questions or doubt here. You cannot do another framework agreement. And that is specifically connected, of course, with the notion of open competition, right? Framework agreement limits the competition. So that's the reason that it sort of locks your market. So you only can do that for a specific time. So the Swedish practice is very conservative. And as I mentioned, the largest buyers in, in Sweden are uh, sort of arguing that there is a need for flexibility because there is a good business case to be made, right? So, of course, then the moment uh, when something happens in Sweden or in Denmark, they look to each other, whether there is some sort of support um, uh, on on one way of arguing or another, because they share a lot of sort of history, but sort of legal culture and, and, and so on and so forth. And then in Danish context, this is also when it becomes slightly, slightly complicated because on the one hand side, we got quite old case from 2011, the Atea case uh, versus Belarus municipality. And in that specific case from 2011, the complaints board, the Danish complaints board said that it's not possible to award a new framework agreement out of out of existing framework agreement. And what they referred to was how, what was the wording within the tender, right? So within the within the um, what was referred to as a public contract, uh, the wording that was used was that the contracting authority was expected to purchase large number of goods in question, but without committing to some concrete number. And then there were some other aspects such as that the uh, subcontracts in question would have a duration of two years, and then the extension was allowed twice for two years more. But also this notion that the contract was to allow another municipality to have the possibility to join the agreement subsequently. So all of this, the complaints board said, this is framework agreement. This is not public contract. And you cannot do framework out of framework agreement. So that seemed that at least on Danish market in 2011, this clarified the situation. No go to such a situation. But then with the new directives and an implementation of new Danish Procurement Act um, in Denmark, they were working quite uh, hard on preparing the so-called preparatory work. Do you have preparatory work in in Netherlands too? Uh, Well, it depends. How you interpret what they are. Well, we we don't have preparatory work to a certain extent. So you would have the deliberations in parliament, which is often called preparatory work, but has no legal standing or no Mm -hmm. legal basis, I would say, as a a legal source. But you would have the explanatory memorandum, which is kind of more, which are more recitals. But that's, I think, not the, 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 what, the travaux preparatoire or the preparatory work. Yeah, so this is quite a big document that somehow is to lay the intentions behind the rules, so to speak, right? So that's the explanatory memorandum. So we do have that. And then in many ways, a lot of things that you kind of didn't manage to put into the law, you put into the preparatory work. 
right? So in that Danish in in the preparatory work to the new Danish Public Procurement uh, Act, there is actually a passage that predicts, in principle, allowance of calling framework agreement our framework agreement. So goes against what earlier on the Danish Complaints Board indicated. And I will quote you right now. This is, please, dear listener, have in mind that this is not anyhow official translation of Danish to English. Oh, I thought you were going to do it in Danish. This is good. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, I would get away with that. Uh, but um, thanks to, to to my dear colleague Rasmus, who helped me out um, in, in, in looking through this, the the um, sort of loose translation, so to speak, would, would, uh, would say the following. Contracts awarded on the basis of framework agreement may have the character of continuous cooperation also called ongoing purchasing contracts or framework contracts. This means that the contracting authority can award a framework contract on the basis of framework agreement, which only states an estimate of expected purchase of the agreement and which does not necessarily entail an obligation to purchase a certain number. So this is really interesting, right? Because um, from from the conversation that I had on this subject matter, it seemed that there was, again, similarly a bit as in Sweden, there's really uh, substantive, um, excuse me, substantial political push to have solution like that. At the same yeah. time, apparently, where, while this preparatory works was drafted, there was a conversation, informal conversation with commission to check whether this potentially might be a problem. And the commission was quite welcoming to that solution. So it seems that that was kind of okay. And that's the reason that that ended up um, in the preparatory work. But there is no follow-up case that would give us information whether the, 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 the sort of the complaints board would change their opinion. And the preparatory work usually when it comes to really Danish-Danish issues of law is very important and is often referred to. But when it comes to uh, provisions that are really based on EU directive, then they usually go much more to interpretation of the directive and go much broader than the preparatory work. So the preparatory work to some extent might be not upheld. But what on the basis of this of this Swedish and Danish cases what really comes to, to mind and the language that is used, where I see the main issue and then where the Netherlands practice also comes into place is, well, the language that is being used is public contract, framework agreement, framework contract. And it's not very clear what is the distinction between them and also the distinction that follows from, for example, something like the Commission's interpretive communication on framework agreements from some years back. That interpretation seems to not be necessarily followed by the national interpretation. So bear with me for a second. I'll just give you the, the general differentiation and then we can dive into also the questions um, of, of, of Dutch practice. And I'm very keen to hear what Willem thinks about it. So if we look at this um, commission's interpretive communication, on that basis and on the basis of at least my logic that is supported by literature review, of course, and the research that I did within this area for, for, for some time a couple of years ago, Framework agreement as a general standpoint, it always will depend. We need to analyze them individually, how they are written, right? But in general, as a concept, 
Framework agreement does not create an obligation on the other of the party, so contracting authority or the supplier, to actually perform the subject matter of the agreement. So it does not create an obligation for me to buy and for the supplier to supply. It sets as general terms of our engagement in years to come, right? This is quite opposite, opposite to public contract, which creates an obligation. There is an obligation for me to do something and for me, excuse me, for me to pay for the goods, let's say, that I received. And then the question that really stands up there is what the heck is framework contract? And if you look, is that public contract or is that framework agreement or it's something else? And this interpretive, interpretive uh, communication from commission ultimately just sets out that framework contract is a framework agreement that sets out all conditions for future contracts and is the type of legal instrument uh, for the automation of the award in the second stage of framework agreement. So ultimately, a good example of this is um, if you think about multi-supplier framework agreements with direct award or so-called off-shelf purchasing, where you do not reopen a competition to mini competition, that is framework contract. Yeah, and that's something that's yeah, not yeah. mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's nice that the commission. I find it's more confusing, but, but yeah, please please go ahead. No, I, no, I but this is it. exactly that because this is pretty much it. This is where I'm sort of going back to this to this Danish preparatory work that says ongoing purchasing contract or framework contract, because they use term framework contract. Which on the basis of which you have an estimate of expected purchase and which does not necessarily entail an obligation. So they said you don't need to have all of the circumstances issues, right? And then that brings me back to the Dutch practice, Willem, because you said framework agreements are public contracts, right? So is that meaning that you will always, when you establish a framework agreement, have an obligation to purchase within the framework? Um, I, I, see, the thing is, it's really interesting, but this difference, um, um, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. But this difference is just not seen in practice. Okay. So, And I also don't, um, because I, I follow your reasoning, right? But in a way, I wonder why is it, because say, okay, okay, let's, I'm, I'm going to. Shoot I from like, the hip, uh, so to speak. <laughs> Yeah, so aren't we making life far more complicated by having all these different types of definitions? That would be my first step. Mm -hmm. And the question is, what's the problem if we make it a public contract? Maybe I'm simplifying too much, mm -hmm. right? And maybe I'm not overseeing the consequences. So I'm trying to like, I'm just genuinely asking the question. Because yeah. say... Let's just assume, right, in a hypothetical world where, you know, Dutch law is the law, mm -hmm. um, you would be under a duty to tender a framework agreement because it's a public contract. You tender a public contract because it's a public contract. And if you're in a framework agreement, after that, you have call-offs or mini competitions that, let's call them contracts, right? They're not a framework agreement. They're just a contract that you sign based on that framework agreement. I find that in my head makes a hell of a lot more sense than calling mm -hmm. it a framework contract. Yeah, contract or whatever else. Because yeah. it's just a contract, right? Um, maybe I'll let you, because the listeners can't see what I'm seeing, but I can see steam coming out of your ears right now. <laughs> That's 
that's not true. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you can you can just maybe you can shoot my bubble and just say, well, life's more complicated than that. Well, you know, it's not necessary that I want to shoot your bubble, but I think that this is what I would be really interesting to hear um, if that is from you or our listeners is whether I miss something or I misunderstand something. But for me, okay, let's start with this framework contracts versus framework agreements, all right, and public contract. From contractual perspective, there is no difference between framework agreement and framework contract. They do not create an obligation. Right. So if you call it potato, potato, there is no obligation in contractual sense. For yeah. me, the main difference between public contract and framework anything is that you have an obligation. And I think that the reason why we in practice don't want to or we expo explore the possibilities of getting that obligation as late as possible is because we have an ongoing needs and those needs can be fluctuating, right? So you're trying to say, okay, at the beginning, we know that we need, you know, some sort of IT system. Um, we will need, as in the example, uh, services and maintenance for them for sure, but we may need some sort of hardware too and supplies, right? Then you will, within the four years, want to maybe establish this other framework agreement that has more specificity. And that sort of, again, gives you time to sort of get uh, the supplier more prepared and get more understanding of what is on the market. And then you award a contract, right? So I think that there is a need for flexibility in this sense. Where yeah. my mind gets slightly confused is the following. Can you have a framework agreement or a framework contract? Let's just bundle them together that establishes a minimum obligation to purchase, but it's not a public contract. I don't think so. And then can you have a public contract in which you do not have a minimum obligation to buy? Again, I don't think so, because I think ultimately the two different ones, is like you got binding obligation and there is specific value, right, that comes in. So what I struggle with, particularly also this passage from the Danish preparatory work on ongoing purchase contracts and this notion that you can enter into longer framework or this longer contract without mandatory requirements to purchase. So what you would have a public contract and you say the contract is for, you know, three million, but I'm not obliged to buy and you're not obliged to perform and this is you know similarly as you sort of ask me this is a genuine question for myself am i not seeing something is there a different ways in which how you structure a contract because for me this is straightforward the, the difference between and and if you would want to simplify really the conversations that we're having is that you're trying to push the obligation to as far as you can but can you have it? What do you think uh, if you if you look at the Dutch practice? Well, the, the more we think, we talk about it. I I don't think. Well, I think we're not actually that far apart because mm -hmm. clearly, as an a characteristic. And sorry, I should have been. I think more clear about that. As a characteristic, also in Dutch practice, right? The framework agreement offers that flexibility and mm -hmm. allows you to call off whatever, whenever a need arises that you have perhaps somewhat foreseen, but not entirely, you know, yeah. but the, the, I think the more of the reasons is why the Dutch legislator called it a public contract still is because you still need to tender it. 
Yeah. But I think the difference is still there, right? Mm -hmm. But that's still where I'm. My mind is like continuously trying to process this 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 distinction because it's extremely technical. Because what you actually, if you look, and I did that exercise, if you look at the wording within the provisions of framework agreement and so on and so forth, we have defined what is framework agreement. We have defined what is public contract. But the problem of that is that sometimes the reference in the provisions on framework agreement is just to contract or to a bid. Yeah. And then in other places, in some places, there is differentiation what they refer to as a framework agreement and a contract. And then you have other provisions under the directive where um, you use framework agreements and public contracts interchangeably. Example yep. here is um, provision, I think it's 71 on modification or 72, right? 72. Yeah. 72 on, on modification. And they refer to framework agreement and public contract. And they sort of use here, you know, kind of for the sake of the same, meaning kind of the same or the same, not meaning the same, but the rules applying to them the same way. Yep. And just to make it more complicated, even that we really don't have to, and I will promise to wrap it up. But I was also really interested when you mentioned about this uh, sort of almost like procedural contract, this two-stage contract, because years ago when I started to discuss also the question of framework agreements in Poland, right now the the, the framework agreements picked up slightly in Poland, um, in the Polish jurisdiction. But some years ago when I started uh, looking into that, they were not used at all. Um, and But surprisingly, people would describe to me this uh, conditional contracts. And the conditional contracts would be kind of exactly what you described. That is like a public contract with two phases. So they're saying that, that it would be normally a worded contract, but it would be very defined until specific certain circumstances where they occur, it would establish an obligation to purchase. So, you know, this is slightly different because also when we're talking about mandatory character of or obligatory character of framework agreement, there are two elements here that we need to distinguish, right? One is whether you are allowed as a public, as a contracting authority to go and do your own tender or you have to use the existing framework agreement that somehow you're obliged to use. That's a one sort of aspect of this mandatory framework agreement. The another one is if you have a type of agreement that sets certain minimum, right? So it says this framework is agreement is for five mil, but you need to buy at least for one mil. But the max value is five, right? Let's say. And then isn't that a public contract? What do you think? I kind of feel like this fulfills or fulfills the specificity of a public contract, that you can have something that is framework agreement, but it's at the same time public contract. Or you think that I'm going bonkers? I'd never dare to say that. <laughs> uh, um, I think just because your question was also just to reflect on the Dutch practice. Mm -hmm. So this would never be with multiple be multiple contractors it's very construction related so mm -hmm. let's design a solution and in the second phase we'll actually contract whatever we've designed together yeah so there's also this development on using construction teams so it's more about how to make sure that the price that we pay for the product is actually because there's still uncertainty of what we're getting Adequate. Right? we're going to figure that out mm -hmm. so that's more the issue so yeah. there's no question there if it's a framework contract or not it's a public contract it's just it has the same um, well, not the same, but it has a similar rela uh, uncertainty related to, to whatever happens after the signing of the first contract, right? You, same with the framework agreement. There needs to be a certain amount of certainty. And one of the things that comes up also in this, in this setting 
is the modification of contract discussion, right? Is that a, is that a problem? But also in this, just a, I would say perhaps would be my last question to fire back at you or to fire sounds so negative. That's mm-hmm. not what I meant. Uh, just to give you the floor again is my first thought when I heard this, like just bringing it back to the framework under a framework contract yeah. is, is I understand this um, political push, right? It's everywhere to create more flexibility within the legislation to just do whatever we want, right? Because we're doing it out of the kindness of our heart and it works, right? And in a way, I understand that because often it is the case, but us lawyers, we have to still protect whatever realm there is, you know, to also achieve the objectives of the law. So my question would then be, isn't this circumvention of the law if you really narrow competition and you briefly touched upon it, but for Dutch practice, this would be a big argument to say it's not possible if you really narrow competition in the first framework agreement and then, you know, you get to do whatever you want in the second one because you've you know, managed based on vague terms. Hmm. And I'm, I'm being a bit more dramatic than perhaps necessary, but it's very vague. You know, you, you just get the people involved that you kind of know already and then you move on to the next stage. So could you shed some more light on that issue before we move to, uh, to to dessert. Yeah, and I think just as a three words to that answer your question and to the dessert, uh, we definitely need at least another two or three, uh, uh, I think, episodes on, on framework because there's a lot of things. It's something that is quite used in practice, but it's it's many unanswered questions still. Um, but then to, I also want three on in-house In-house. And we, public, already, so. we already did in-house. <laughs> we already okay. did frameworks as well, yeah, so yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah keep yeah. on going. Yeah. Um, to the point. Um, so, yes, I think that this is a problem, because the problem is that we need to be particularly delicate uh, when it comes to framework agreements, right? Because it limits um, competition. So, I think that for sure, if it's to be expanded above four years, this is no go. But the question is what within four, uh, four years and exactly the point of, uh, the point that you're sharing, whether it's very gen, like it's too general. It doesn't really clearly specify what, what that is. And from that reason, that brings, that comes another question to juxtapose to whether see whether argumentation is different. What if we flip it and we say dynamic purchasing system out of which you call off framework agreement? Because up here you don't have narrowing competition, right? Up here you kind of put everyone on. Right? I can see that your head is sort of spinning. So okay, well, I'm going to also, spare you that one. No, I was also, I, I actually, I wasn't going to say this, but it also reminds me of like an open house system, like the Tirkonen type of thing, where you, you just let everyone in that fulfills certain criteria, you know, mm-hmm. the Dr. Falk type of jurisprudence, where I thought, oh, isn't this this? And aren't these. You know, anyways, let's, yeah. I, I would say let's leave these questions out in the open. Let's not complicate it further with exactly. open house discussions. So or, we, will, um, we will come back at some point to dynamic purchasing system and framework agreements. Uh, yeah. One last sentence to the point also that um, Villa made, and I think I would want at some point to come back, is this approach of uh, modification of framework agreements versus modification of public contracts. Just to say, I think we are still in competition, particularly if we have a mini, mini, uh, mini competition to go for. So I think that actually, in my personal opinion, the modification maybe need to be even more strictly interpreted than in public contract because you got still a chance to choose someone else. Mm-hmm. So that's just as a sideline. 
Um, you can't I drop will, bombs at the end and not expect me to respond. But yeah, keep going. We yeah, will just do that. I think what I'm going to do also, I'm going to prepare because I got quite extensive notes from this. I'm going to do a blog post and I'm going to just leave it with a cliffhanger. Um, and hopefully our our uh, listeners will find it interesting to come and read through the blog because there is one more case in Denmark called Remondis from 2020, which again sort of differentiates slightly or point out the challenge was that something that was procured as a public contract, the bidder said, no, no, this is actually a framework agreement. And the complaints board again got a little bit into conversation about, well, what is the difference? So I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to write it down and, and please come and join to our fairly new, freshly established blog that we're going to have on our website and um, read some more. And with that, the main takeaway, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's <laughs> no, an it's, absolute mess. No, no, no. I'm not going to let you. You've been very insightful and I've been challenging you a little bit by by posing some some very strong Dutch positions, I suppose. We've talked a bit about the difference between a framework agreement and a public contract and a framework contract and all these different types of agreements and contracts to complicate it further. Um, thank you for also highlighting super interesting case law from from Sweden or Denmark that I, I for one, would have never known about if it wasn't for you. So thanks for that. Um, back to the uh, dessert in the last couple of minutes that we have. Um, the main question is how to deal with criticism in um, in academia. I, I understand that this is quite broad still, but let's do it based on research, perhaps. I mean, you could include teaching and just general activities, but I, th I, I think the question that we got given or the suggestion we got given was mostly related to your work as yeah, an academic. Yeah, It was specifically, I think, related, if I remember correctly, from from comment from from Albert on our LinkedIn, was specifically how not to take your research too personally, and then yeah. afterwards how you sort of you react to criticism. But it actually relates also slightly to maybe not necessarily teaching, but again mentoring and dealing with young academics, because I think that this is also very important. On the one hand side, I think it's 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 actually not only for the receiver, question for the receiver, so how I am to react to the criticism that I'm being given, but I think it's equally also other way around. So like if you want to provide a constructive feedback that may include criticism, because that ultimately what um, constructive feedback will be, how you do it in a, in, a, in a right manner, right? So I think it's sort of connected with the two. Um, we sort of had a little bit of prelude of a bit of a chuckle before we started to recording on this that we attempting to answer this because I think it's a very difficult question now how not to take too personally criticism to your own research. So Willem, any gold yeah, thoughts? I mean, the, the, the thing is, is I think it's a super valid question where the answer is also incredibly difficult because I get pissed off <laughs> if I'm completely <laughs> honest. Yeah, like, yeah. And, and of course, it's, I, I perhaps wouldn't show it at first, or well, you, like you're professional, but you but you bubbling up inside. <laughs> yeah, we talked about steam coming out of your ears yeah. before, like that. I mean, and I was joking before, but that's kind of like if you feel like, and I think that's, and and that's where I think the link that Albert mentioned is so important is when you've worked on something for so long and it hasn't seen daylight yet, it becomes like a you know, the metaphor of a baby comes up very quickly or the metaphor of like something that is just your brainchild. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's really close to something that you've worked on and that you're perhaps also proud of. And then to receive a criticism 
um, which maybe in my head, the, the difference between fee- feedback always seems a bit more positive than criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I fully um, relate, at least to the feeling that it's, it's very difficult. And I think yeah. for us as academics, I think sometimes we differ a bit from other professions where your integrity and standing as a person relies so much on what you put down on paper and how much your self-worth can also be be related to it. You are, in a sense, your own brand. So the research that you're putting out is your own brand and it means that much to you. A lot relies on it. So it is it is personal and it's difficult to, to deal with the criticism. But I think it's, again, also going back to what you indicated um, already, we also need to differentiate with different from different types of criticism. Sometimes, once in a while, if you for long enough in this business, you will just get someone who will stand up on a conference or something. That all, just, we all know that person. We Not, all we <laughs> all know at least a couple of, of of those occurrences in our life. That someone just stands up and just is a bit mean or nasty and just wants to I don't know get a bit of light on themselves or kind of gets off on the fact of kind of feeling superior or whatever. And I think that sometimes when that happens, it's fully understandable that one would feel really negative and criticized and your self-esteem goes a lot down. But I wonder whether we actually can, I think that you need to differentiate that from another form of criticism, which is that someone stands up and gives gives you a gives you a constructive feedback what i mean by that there are certain standpoints uh that within our field we know more or less the sort of core group of people that in our community we work with we know sort of where our normative standpoints stand in variety places so so actually it's very very keen and i hope that albert won't mind that i use him as an example because he also gave at that topic but Albert and myself, we normatively stand on on quite different starting point in our approach to research and public procurement. So it will be quite often that we disagree, but the way how we disagree, the way how we do, like I, one of the things that it, and it happened on several occasions that before I was presenting something or submitting something. I sent and I kindly asked Albert for feedback because I knew that he will be, a, so to speak, the harshest critic because he seems things from a quite different perspective. And he always, to give Albert full credit, did it very uh, professionally, very kindly. And, and, and you don't feel like you've been wronged. And the arguments that you can then use, because it's not necessarily that you're going suddenly to agree and change your viewpoints, but you know how to make your arguments stronger. And I think that this is something that we are to actually seek, right? Because the constructive feedback can make our research better. But that's the reason that I also mentioned that it's similarly important to think about how you criticize someone, how you give someone a constructive feedback so it doesn't feel personal, that it doesn't feel like you did a crappy job. It's not that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is very interesting. I think that you could improve it if you consider X, Y, and Z, or you know, this one. Um maybe I'm coming from a very different perspective, but I'm not fully convinced X, Y, and Z, right? We can agree to disagree in the end of the day, but it's the form I think matters. Wouldn't 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 you say, Willem? Of one hundred percent. I think it's all relates to intention and um a, a, a form 
right? So how you you end up giving the the feedback. On the other hand, if I can take a step forward, sure. From from going from there, like even though someone can still, even though that can be very, like there can be scenarios when someone mm-hmm. has done just that and still hurts, and it still hurts. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I'm not, not wanting to be true. overly uh, dramatic about it, but I do think that one acknowledging, so the, the form, like you mentioned it, I, I've, I've also been at those trainings, you do the hamburger technique, right? Which I don't understand because the best bit is, you know, well, I suppose that's the thing. You start off with the bun and that's a nice thing. And then the critique is the meat and then you have the oh, bun yeah, and the, you have something We, we call nice it sandwich, sandwich method. You sandwich the negative and positive, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I <laughs> yeah. prefer hamburgers. Burger. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Anyways, so th- th- of course that's, that's super important. And I, I fully, uh, I think that's important. Mostly because it's also time, right? If, you, if you're mm-hmm. giving uh, f- feedback on paper, it's far harder and more time consuming Ooh, to take absolutely. this approach than to just give the feedback, right? And just and then I know people sometimes say, "Hey, uh, sometimes I can come across a bit harsh," um, but, but just know that it was because of time constraints. And in a way, that helps. I right? think it, it does, ha- doesn't it? It does. Yeah. At least that's one step forward. But then when you open the document and you are get, you know, critique exclamation that is, marks. That's the worst. I what think. the hell is this? <laughs> you know that type of stuff. So this yeah. is wrong. You know, I, I think everyone's been in that scenario, whether you're a PhD or later on in your, your career. I think how do you then the question is, is even though someone's done it right, or they've not done it right, is how do you still step away from it? Right? How do you, you know, make something positive out of it? Like, what if have you got ideas? Or how do you deal with it? Other than, you know, after the phase of smashing in a wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, again, this is probably something that we also need to highlight, that it's very different when you're dealing with, because I sort of went straight away to the criticism or feedback, depending, you know, how we word it in person, whether you touched upon something that I think is even worse in many ways, which is the written feedback, right? Let's say you submit article or something and you get it back and, oh boy, this is the worst because I think that it's very difficult to communicate kindness as a purpose behind, you know, this sort of the, the, the criticism that comes on the paper. I think it's a bit easier to do it in person. Um, but the way that I will do it, I usually will open it, my blood pressure will go to the roof, and then I will leave it. I will leave it. And then I will try to go, and I'll be very honest, or for a wine glass in the evening, or for a run or something. I just need to leave it be. I just, you know, I didn't develop yet a better scenario, but I need to go through the first immediate shock of, you know, my article not being accepted, let's say, or or something being said that this is totally off to the wrong um, the wrong street, so to speak. Um, and then, but then, you know, one of the things that I pride myself, and I don't know whether that speaks to, to, to our listeners, but I ultimately will come and sort of, so to speak, grind back to the work, right? So I was like, okay, yeah, this pissed me off. It made me sad, all that. But at some point is... There is, you know, this saying that it doesn't, it's not how like you start, but it's how you finish, right? So it's like, okay, or you can let it break you and say, okay, I don't look into that. I put it in a drawer. I'm, I'm leaving that be. And that is in a way, maybe a defeat. Sometimes it maybe can be also a success because you may just realize, okay, I need to rather cut my losses. I just sort of tried something that didn't work out. 
But if you f- strongly feel that there is something else, you need to go back to drawing board, right? And and that, I think, what ultimately makes you a great researcher is that you come back, you sort of face your fears, you read through it. And also, it's perfectly fine to take what you agree with, but not that you, what you agree with, but where you see a value and you see, okay, yeah, that... If I would do this and that, that will make it better. And things that you just think like, nope, nope, yeah, it's nope. not going to happen. Yeah, no. exactly. Because I mean, there's also a reason behind, you know, finding a different venue perhaps for your paper than if it doesn't fit this. Or perhaps it was just unlucky that you got a grumpy reviewer too. That I also think happens. The, the point that you mentioned about stepping away, that's that's valid. I still find though that it then nibbles at you, right? It still itches in the back of your head and you're trying to be calm about it, but still all you want to do yeah. is do something else. But I also find that um, letting the feedback, you know, it, it's my brainchild. So what I find is very useful is to give it to a colleague. Yeah. You know, if you have good colleagues, they read, they can read your article and then they're, they're not emotionally involved at all, right? Mm-hmm. It, you probably w- wouldn't be comfortable doing it with everyone, but like everyone has or hopefully has that type of connection with someone where you can just say, hey, can you read this? This is the feedback that I got. What do you think? I, I'm, I'm pissed off, but does this help? Yeah, and I did the, that a couple of times too. Yeah. And at the beginning of the, um, uh, you know, particularly when I was doing my PhD, I kept a list of things that I thought I was good at, right? Mm-hmm. Or things that I felt like I had achieved, right? Because a PhD can be such a long thing, right? It's like, it's a long period of time that you're working on something with no milestones, right? Well, maybe there are milestones, but like, it feels yeah, yeah. like I haven't finished. And for me, having that list that I could go back to and kind of like reboot my confidence to a certain extent, I think that was useful. Um, but putting it away and discussing it with other people that don't have that emotional connection is by far the most helpful thing that helps me, to be honest. And I think, you know, to conclude, because we it's, it's getting a bit longish, our episode this time around, um, as it usually does when we're having a good time here. Um, I would just say that also it's again, I'm a true believer and, you know, sense of community. So also if that message can resonate with anyone, there's no academic who does research that has, I, I strongly believe that, at least not any that I know, that has not been rejected before has not heard that, you know, whatever that person is doing is a bit rubbish or it's off or this, like, we all, this is, for someone, you know, my mom always said that to me, it's like, for someone who, you know, really struggles with uh, self-esteem, this is not a job for weak-hearted because you just get pounded on your head time and time again in many ways, right? So it's a part that you need to develop a bit of thick skin and and also rely on a community around you of the people like Willem said, that you trust that sometimes if you get something, some bob like this, let's say a rejection from a journal or something, that you can send it to someone else and that happened to me. And then um, the other person will filter and will say, you know what, I read the feedback and write, write, read your paper. I deleted half of the things that I really don't think are relevant for you. So now you have the thing that you should focus on. And you know, and, and that helps too. I think yep. so. Yeah, no, for sure. And I've also realized that like, these are only our experiences. And I, I think they were, the, those are the things that we do to cope with this um, as relevant as I think they are probably to a broader, broader audience as well. I think um, it's a shared I, I also, experience. 
It's a shared yeah, experience, for right? Sure. Yeah. And I also, I mean, if I look at the amount of rejections of grant proposals that I, I got a couple that were awarded, most of them were rejected. Some journal articles were rejected somewhere. They got without any reviews were accepted at another journal. It's just, it's also part and parcel of the game. Because it's um, also not an helps. objective process, right? I think that we also need to somehow, for anyone who still believes that, get rid of that sense. It's This is not objective uh, process. The reviewer or whatever you do or someone that is providing you with criticism, that's their opinion. It's not for sure. given facts, right? And, and that's important to have. But at the same time, because uh, I just feel that it's important for me to add that last sentence on the fact that Particularly if you're though younger, if you're just starting and you may be writing some of your first stuff, listen to the more experienced um, colleagues, particularly the ones that you trust. Because what I'm starting to also experience lately, and I need to say that I don't think that that's such a good practice either, is that you starting. I started to see a certain sort of fashion of people just disagreeing and disregarding any type of feedback. And I don't think that that's also good. This very tunnel vision is like, oh, you're old school, so I'm not listening to your viewpoints. This is my thing, which I think that there is also need for a certain level of humbleness and context that if there are people that work on something 15, 20 years, they probably know a bit more and they for sure may have something valuable to contribute in the feedback. So I think that I would just want to leave particularly our PhD um, students who might listen to us also with, with that message um, from me. So I think that um, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed our chat today, Willem. <laughs> this is, when you say these things, and then we'll definitely close up shop because we've been terrible at timing the last this one in the last episode. Oh, we yeah. promise to be better next time. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, sometimes when you say these things, I think what... Does she think about the episodes where she doesn't say that it's a pleasure? Does she just rock up at dinner at night, talk I'm to like, her loved God. one, and just say, "Oh, I spoke to Willem again." Anyways, let's he leave it at that. He made me talk about. Actually... He made me talk about in-house again. <laughs> uh, let's talk sustainability. We might find each other again a bit more. Sure. Um, thanks, thank you Willem. for thanks for your time. It was a pleasure. Um, hopefully, you um, you enjoyed the conversation as well. If you can give us a, a like on whatever platform you're using, or if you can share the episode, that's always much appreciated. And until next time, this was Bustek, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bustek, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bustekpodcast.com. Thank you.